Hello there guys, uh, David Brown here and today we're sitting down with Paul Larkin to talk about his latest film and book project. Hello there Paul, how are you doing? I'm very well David, how are you? Good, good, thanks very much. Um, so I we were just mentioning there about the new project and it's, be, it's been a wee bit of a while Paul, so uh, you've started writing again and uh, what got you back writing and, and indeed this particular subject, it's the, the new project? Well, during lockdown, I'd kind of remastered two of my older books uh, and also wrote a kind of novella trilogy and then wrote the book Tim's. And that was a hell of a lot within that period to actually, you know, continue to write. Um, And I'd really been sort of exhausted of what I thought were good ideas um, in the sense that I was kind of looking at stuff for my own life and recalling stuff that I could kind of fit in. Um, and I was kind of done with that. And I also think that um, when you're doing anything creative, no matter what it is, you should have something to say. You know, that should be the point of it. And I never really had anything to say. You know, I spent a lot of time online arguing about Celtic during the kind of lockdown season. And I was thinking that, you know, my views didn't really align with a lot of people who just seemed to be happy to accept what was happening at the club and yeah. you know and things like that. So I was I was a wee bit kind of disillusioned if you, if, if if I'm honest. Um but throughout that I'd always kept up conversation with, with people, in particular David Potter, um who would kind of get in touch with each other over big Celtic victories or disastrous Celtic days and that had kind of went on for a long time and David was kind of unique in the sense that when I first started writing and of course I didn't even think about this when it when it was happening a few I mean I'm going back like 25 years almost a few Celtic writers were a bit sniffy you know they were kind of like who are you and what do you want type thing you know um, and I wasn't really prepared for that at all um, and didn't really know how to handle it whereas David Potter was completely the opposite and sort of willing to help, willing to give advice willing to contribute to things I was doing and so we kind of did remain in touch um, through various means um, and then of course he, he got ill and, and sadly passed away and I kind of started thinking to myself that um, even before then that, you know, I'm, I'm being a bit sort of uh, remiss to be saying, oh, well, I'm not going to write again. And here's a guy who loved writing and produced an incredible amount of not just Celtic content, but football content. And he doesn't have the opportunity to do that, you know, as he's ill and, and subsequently passed away. So I started looking about for ideas, particularly in the, frame the stuff that I'd done, you know, in terms of the asterisk years and that. And started initially to look at the sort of what was called the Great Flag Flutter um, in the early 50s. And once started digging into that, I thought, there's a hell of a lot more to this story than that I knew and was kind of out in the public domain. Um, and that, as you said at the start, the, the, the kind of seeds of it were probably um, sown before we were even formed. And I certainly wasn't aware of that um, to the extent that I subsequently found out. Um, and I certainly wasn't aware of um, the main 
so one of the main protagonists in the story was a guy called George Graham who basically ran the SFA for the late 20s to the late 50s. Um, and he had, like, you know, a, as you know, a, an immense power in Scotland. So, you know, as well as running the game, basically, he also picked the Scotland team. Um, so if in terms of the, you know, power, he was like, could do whatever he wanted. And what he did quite often was basically manipulate people into doing his dirty work. Um, you know, they would find themselves in positions of power within the SFA. And he would say, well, you know, these things are the rules and stuff like that. And when I started to dig into this guy, you know, well, obviously with the help of researchers and stuff, I thought, you know, <laughs> this guy's like the fucking archetypal bigot, you know, member of the Orange Order, high-ranking Mason, and who seemed to spend his basic term in the SFA, bear in mind it's almost 30 years, trying to get Celtic to be shut down. So I thought that's a story in itself, but then as I kind of started to dig even further and sort of dig away at the perceptions that had happened around that time, there was definitely stuff right from the start of Celtic that really intrigued me and kind of baffled me as well because, you know, we're talking about the formation of the club, like the the kind of uh, narrative that's been produced is that Brother Wolfred, you know, started the club to feed and clothe the poor immigrant Irish uh, in Glasgow's East End. But that's only a tiny, tiny part of the story. And when you do the research and when you look at stuff in the archives and dig away all different kinds of sources, you know, which, again, what I would say is this kind of stuff's not going to be on the internet. You know, it's not going to be something you type into Google and go, oh, I right, that's that, fine. Um, and it was obvious that Celtic, as well as being this idea that we could um, make a difference in that community, was absolutely a vehicle for Irish home rule. And that some of the main players, like John Glass and partly Elsh and Michael Davitt, you know, their whole lives were dedicated to the reunification of Ireland. So that was kind of really surprising, but also kind of bewildering that that had sort of been airbrushed for our history. In the sense that, you know, it's always like there's a statue of Brother Wilfred there and then there's a mass in St Mary's and all that kind of thing. And of course, whilst Wilfred had the idea, um, the actual making of the club in terms of, you know, the signing of the players and the building of the stadium and the paying of the wages and, you know, the business plan all that came for John Glass, Pat Welsh and Michael Davitt. And um, through their kind of influence on the identity of Celtic and that sort of um, formation of the club, a lot of the seeds that then made us defend having the Irish tricolour were sown back then. Well, see, just on that, you mentioned quite a few names there, Paul. Some will be familiar mm. to people listening, some not so familiar, and we'll have a wee varying mm. understanding of each person there. Um, going back to one I'd like to mention would be Michael Davitt there. Mm. Um, and if you could tell us a wee bit about, about Michael Davitt, 
in the lead up to Celtic, what he was kind of doing, what he was um, working towards and what have you, and how he kind of became involved with the formation of Celtic. Well, Michael Davitt was was obviously a Fenian, and he was, um, you know, he formed what was called the Land League in Ireland, and that was effectively about, you know, for example, to this day, the you've got something like Loch Nee, uh, in, in in the six counties, which is um, sort of right in the middle, yeah, and there's a lot of the fishermen right now are saying that a lot of the water's toxic and various things, right. And when they've dug into this, they've found out that the actual seabed of this lock is owned by some English earl, right? right? Who gets remunerated every time they get any work done on it, basically. So that was kind of a huge thing in Ireland in terms of what, you know, these so-called lairds and earls and all that kind of thing and lords owned in Ireland. So David was kind of about reclaiming these you know, as Irish things. But bear in mind, of course, that Ireland at the time, whether we like it or no, is a part of Britain. Yeah. So there is the stirrings of this by these people because there hasn't really been any real sort of resistance to British rule probably since the end of the 1700s in terms of armed force and yep. resistance there. So... Davitt and John Glass and Pat Welsh kind of saw Celtic as an opportunity in terms of, you know, we've got these Irish clubs in Scotland, but we've got ones like Hibs who are basically born out of St. Patrick's Church in Edinburgh who basically drop players that didn't go to Mass, bring them only from the Young Catholic Men's Society. And so Glass and Davitt especially had the kind of foresight to say, well, that's not going to help us. You know, we need to be stronger and, and bigger than that. That was real do it for the start. Eh? Aye. Whereas, you know, because of the formation of the club, you know, um, at the heart of an idea by a by an Irish Catholic priest, we would have probably had the right to say we're only playing Irish Catholics. But they had the kind of vision to say, well, no, that's no... You know, because as well as doing what we wanted to do, we wanted to be successful. And, and so Welsh... And um, David and Glass had the idea that you needed a figurehead um, on the pitch for this. And that figurehead was James Kelly, who was arguably the best player in the world at the time. Had just been part of the Renton World Champions team that had beat West Bromwich Albion. And was obviously from a kind of Irish Catholic background um, for the Renton area. Um, and Kelly was seen as the guy who, that's going to be our captain, our leader on the pitch kind of thing, who people can identify with. Kelly was initially a centre-forward, but then kind of became a, what you would call then a kind of attacking centre-half, you know, as well as defending. He was always up trying to score goals and stuff like that. So that was really important to them. Um, and as, as Brother Walfred's sort of um, involvement in the club started to dissipate when he would eventually move um, to London, Glass and Davitt were really forming um, what they saw as you know, a beacon of Irish identity in Scotland, a proper one, you know, no one that was just about giving people a game of football and all that, it was actually about standing up. Now, the interesting thing is, <clears throat> you might think that because of the times then, that there would have been a hell of a lot of resistance to this, but there really was not, and the reasons are, 
for what I just said earlier on, I mean, there'd been the kind of Irish um, rebellion in 1798. That was, you know, long gone for the memory by the time Celtic are formed. So the Irish in Scotland are never really seen as a threat to anything, particularly the establishment or anything like that. As a matter of fact, in part of my research, um, I looked at the story of Birkin here and found out that, for anybody who doesn't know, they were the so-called uh, body snatchers, the grave robbers and all that. They were held up as a <coughs> picture of Irish people in Scotland. You know, this is what they're like, they're thieves, they're murderers, they're vagabonds, they're blackguards, or all that kind of thing. And that was kind of it, you know, it was like, you know, never a twain shall meet. But when in my research, what I found out was that they were actually working for a professor who had this idiotic idea that um, Catholics, particularly for Ireland, and uh, black people, people of colour, were genetically inferior to white people. And he wanted Burke and Hare to go and find the bodies of Irish Catholics in graveyards and to, so he could prove it, so he could work on them and prove it. Of course, that narrative was never put out there at the time. It was just a case of Irishman head cases, you know, we need to, we need to watch them kind of thing. Um, and, that, and so that was kind of bizarre. Um and so that was kind of how it was. Everything was fine, and we get into you know the early nineteen hundreds when one of the, probably the first really great Celtic team that wins six in a row, spearheaded by Jimmy Quinn, and that's when again it's all right having Celtic around. It's all fine. Everybody's all happy, but they can't start winning. You know they can't start winning trophies and fucking. There's a line can't that can't be crossed. Aye. So Jimmy Quinn was targeted by the SFA on numerous occasions and he was Celtic's first real superstar you know he was like um, the Larson of his time or the Kyogo of his time kind of thing an absolute stalwart very humble guy off the pitch you know didn't he wasn't he giving it the big I am but when he walked over that white line he was turned into a dynamo they called him the mighty atom you know and so he was kind of targeted by the SFA but of course in big picture terms one of the things that happened that was probably the biggest domino effect, ironically, in Scottish football, was the Easter Rising in 1916 in Dublin. Because that was when I, of course, as everybody listening will probably know, when Irish men and women took up arms in defence of their country. And a lot of Scottish Unionists, Protestants, Presbyterians, whatever you want to call them at the time, you know, to use a... a, a uh, political terms shat themselves thinking that this would spread to Scotland and that we all need to do something about it now before this Rangers have just been this Glasgow club they have no Protestant identity they have no I-ready quintessentially British nothing like that at all but as I say the other thing that happened excuse me then was that Harland and Wolf opened in the shipyards a governor in 1912 and where it brought a lot of people from the occupied six counties, well, it was occupied 32 then, to work there. And steadily they started going to Ibrox because it was a local club, you know, just walking to the area there. And their influence just started to come into the club because they had money. You know, they were, they were dockyard workers. So they were spending money at Ibrox and saying, you know, we need to be a bit more fucking... So they had a voice. Aye, aye, basically. And so... Um, 
John uh, Primrose Ewer, the chairman of Rangers at the time, was like, OK, we need to watch these bastards, uh, so we're going to have this policy of no signing Catholics. But of course it was unsaid. And, and that is really when, so that's happened in 1919, that's really when the foundation of this so-called old firm rivalry begins. Celtic have already got their identity, right? Um, talking about the flag, you know, we had flown the old Irish flag at Celtic Park since our formation. And by that, I mean the green one with the gold harp in the middle of it. We changed that to the Irish tricolour in 1921 when uh, Ireland got 26 counties back. And that flag, believe it or not, actually flew at Celtic Park for the next 30 years. Same one. It was taken down after every game. It was taken down in the summer. But when Celtic played, that flag went up. Um, so by this time, there is a, this rivalry now. And suddenly, there are things like um, newspaper caricatures of Irish people making them look stupid and uh, dragged out the bog and all this kind of nonsense. Whereas any time a kind of Ranger supporter was portrayed, he was always portrayed as a kind of handsome, lucid, intelligent person. Um, which I know that'll probably shock people. <laughs> <laughs> um, so within that is, is is this thing. And of course, I mentioned James Kelly. We have him as a player, then he goes on the board and then he becomes chairman. And um, when he dies, his son takes his place on the board. And that, of course, is Robert Kelly. Yes, a name that should be familiar to most of the guys listening again. So just picking up on a few things that you mentioned there, mm-hmm. Paul, and when you're talking about after the the rising of 1916 mm-hmm. and um, an individual that you mentioned, George Graham, becoming the secretary of the, the SFA at the time. And, mm-hmm. and like you said, that it wasn't the, the kind of secretary that was your pen pusher or mm-hmm. get involved in your administration, really, and whatever. That This was a guy that, that was the overall influence manager, if you mm-hmm. like, at the time that decided who went on the park for Scotland. Mm-hmm. And in that time, when you mention it there, if you put that timeline together, it's, it's a very short period of time for your 1916 to 1927 for these ideologies to yeah. develop on our support and let's be, be honest here it's an, an apartheid policy that was born yes, through the introduction of that um, time there and I mean, when you look onward as well George Graham I'm, I'm pretty sure we're going to hear a hell of a lot mm, about yeah. um, so that individual ties in with yeah, a lot so of I mean, the way I mean, that the future developed for that club Huge part on the apartheid policy in the book because you've got to look at the big picture of that, right? Um, it was the, didn't the SFA stamp that out and they did absolutely nothing. That then pervaded this um, belief in Scottish society that it was okay to discriminate against Catholics and people from Ireland and stuff like that because, you know, the second biggest club in Scotland has this policy, nobody's challenged it, it must be all right. And that then, you know, led into so many things, so many things of hatred and so many instances of people, and as well as discrimination against Catholics, that it meant that, you know, back in the day, I mentioned before, like, transport was no really an option back then for people to travel and watch their team. So, like, in cities in Liverpool and Sheffield and Manchester, you'd go to watch Man United one week and Man City the next week. Well, that wasn't an option for Catholics in Glasgow because they were not welcome <laughs> at Ibrox. 
you know, when big, as we went into the 60s and 70s and 80s, when big European teams started coming to Ibrox, Catholics in Glasgow were denied the opportunity to see them if they wanted to watch them play against Rangers because they weren't welcome. But this was never mentioned. Right through to the 70s, when, of course, you had the horrific display of their behaviour in Barcelona, you know, where they're basically um, destroying chapels and graffitiing them and, you know, raiding the pitch and they couldn't get the banned for a year after it and all that. It stirs up again. And the press are actually, for the first time ever, saying, what the fuck is going on with this policy? And Wally Waddle came out and said, there isn't a policy. You know, even then they would still deny it. I said, well, name all the Catholics that um, you've signed. He said, well, we've never found anyone good enough yet. Oops. You know, and I'm saying, well, this is at a time when, you know, Pele, you know, <laughs> Alfredo Di Stefano, um, it, it just boggles the mind. So there is a huge part on that. In terms of George Graham, this is where McGrory comes into the story because, of course, McGrory is, by any fucking definition you want, the best player on the planet at the time, talking the late 20s, early 30s. And one of the things that always gets spoken about in terms of McGrory is how come he only played seven times for Scotland? He scored six goals for them in his first six games, including the one that started the famous Hamden Roar. His last game against Ireland, he never scored and he never played again. Well, it's because George Graham was picking the team. That's it. In a nutshell, George Graham hated Celtic, hated Ireland, hated anything to do with it. McGrory was a, par- a practising Catholic Celtic player, you know, and it didn't matter to him that Scotland had the best player in the world in their hands. He wasn't going to get picked because he was the wrong type of person for George Graham. And that's, you know, one of the biggest crimes in Scottish football history, you know, for a guy of that record. And let's not forget the record, the 550 goals in 548 games, 56 hat-tricks, eight goals against Dunfermline in one game, and 62 goals in one competitive season. You know, this is a fucking machine of goal scoring. And that's the thing, Paul. I mean, hopefully a lot of the guys listening in would have seen uh, the video that you had mm. released with Jimmy McGrory mentioning that that was brilliantly narrated with, mm. your, uh, with Jake there. Yeah. And, I mean, th- these things are phenomenal. These, these things are mind-boggling. And mm-hmm. for this to be under the control of one individual yeah. at the time and for him to have carte blanche to do that, it, it just... It, I mean, listen, even in the modern day, any big institution or organisation cannot be run on the feelings of one person. Yeah. You know, if I get out of the bed the wrong side and I make decisions left, right and centre that are absolutely nightmare for whatever I'm in running, just because I'm in a bad mood, that can't work like that. So his influence is massive, George Graham, and he has already tried twice uh, in the first six years of his tenure at the SFA to shut Celtic down, which we'll go into in the book. Um, we then get into the next great Celtic team with the 37-38 the Empire Exhibition and all that kind of thing but then of course that's all curtailed by um, the World War and so you know there's no official leagues and all that kind of thing and when the World War 2 finishes Robert Kelly becomes chairman in 1947 <coughs> McGrory has just been put in as manager by um, the chairman at the time and a guy called Tom White. And basically, um, Celtic had a part-time team at the time because of the war situation and all that. Oh, kind of thing. 
and um, you know that'll astound people. But you know we are in the business of selling our best players. Jimmy Delaney goes to Manchester United, and we flirt with relegation, and so much so that we basically have to go to Dens Park on the last day of the season to and we have to win to ensure. Now we looked into this in depth. And some of the things are staggering. Celtic had three goals chopped off in the first 20 minutes of that game, of which nobody could answer why, what was the problem with them. Um, we ended up actually scoring with two minutes to go to, to, to get, um, so to save ourselves. Joe Weir scored the third day's hat-trick. And McGrory actually found out later that Dundee, who had nothing, nothing to play for, we're on the biggest bonus in Scottish football history to beat us that day. And he was furious about that. Because he just went, McGrory was, you know, for everything he was on the pitch, and there's another one, humble guy for a bit, he just thought that was just disgraceful in terms of fair play and, you know, a fair game, basically. So we've got all that going on, and then, of course, comes a great flag flutter. Now, this begins because... The flag itself at Celtic Park, which at this point flies between the jungle and the Celtic end, is in tatters because it's been there for 30 years. So McGrory's like, we need to get a new flag. So he contacts every flag maker in Glasgow and funnily enough, they're all too busy to make it. Ironic, um, So he has been a Celtic player over an Ireland in tour and being this humble guy... Says I met Eamon De Valera when I was over there. I wonder if he'll remember me. You know, which again, that would have been like the equivalent of fucking um, Mary Robinson in Ireland meeting Pelly or Maradona and no, no remembering it, right? So he writes to De Valera and asks if he can send a flag over. Uh, we'll remunerate any costs and all that. And within five days, so there's not even lost a game between times, a new flag arrives, courtesy of Eamon De Valera, president of Ireland. No cost, it's on us. Thanks very much. Keep up the good work. And that's what it is. And this is the red rag to the bigots. Because it goes back to that feeling I was telling you about. Ah, it's okay to be Irish unless you're threatening us. Our status quo. It's okay to fly a flag if it's in fucking tatters. But if it's a brand spanking new, big, huge tricolour thing, now we can't stomach that. So they, t- they try to shut Celtic down. For that, and we'll go into all the reasons why. Then there's a lot more than I knew at the time. Um, the perception was that it was, you know, Harry Swan, the Hibs chairman, who tried to eradicate all Irishness for Hibs. He's in charge um, of the SFA with only George Graham behind him, and he just thinks, right, I'm going to fucking shut Celtic down because I'm an, I'm an anti Irish bigot, which is absolutely not the story. I can say that right now. Um, and so. What goes on is a is a war for Celtic survival and Celtic being basically defended by Robert Kelly and James McGrory. And Robert Kelly's an interesting figure in Celtic's history. Um, and during our research, I asked um, people at Celtic, is there any mention of Robert Kelly at Celtic Park? No, nothing. No footies, no nothing. Any mention of McGrory? There is now one small plaque in this new sports bar that um, remembers the fact that McGrory opened the main stand at Celtic Park, the new main stand in 1971. 
which I must admit, when I heard that, I thought, you know what, if I was remembering Jimmy McGlory at Celtic, it wouldn't be for opening the main stand. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know what I mean? I think he'd done a few things better than that. So, But they're absolutely at the forefront of fighting for Celtic, and they're also two people who are basically influenced by the formation, and they know what it was all about, and they know Celtic's relationship with Ireland. And Kelly is part of what I would call the least curtain Irish Scottish, right? He has went to, because when his father signed for um, Celtic, there's this myth that goes around that Celtic stole a lot of players for hips, right, and started a team. No true. What Celtic did was um, introduce professionalism into Scottish football, and they signed players. You know, they offered them money. In James Kelly's case, he was offered a wage and pubs in Blantyre which inevitably meant the Kelly family moving to Blantyre, and that's where Robert Kelly's born. Robert Kelly goes on board in 1932 when James Kelly dies and then becomes chairman in 1947. He's absolutely got Celtic coursing through his veins, right? But he is a kind of posh guy. You know, he's a stockbroker to trade. There wasn't even any name going about, certainly amongst us. Um, He's went to uh, the first fee-paying Catholic school in Scotland, uh, St Joseph's and Dumfries and he's a brilliant political uh, negotiator and that's absolutely key to the survival of Celtic as we'll tell in the story um, it's not just a case of passion and you know we'll never, we'll never fucking um, bow down to you bastards it's about scarf, um, careful political manoeuvring Outwit the SFA and George Graham, and of course, people know that um, we won that battle. What they might not know is what happens after it, and which is very, very interesting and absolutely massive in Celtic's history and in the history of the SFA, and isn't really recognised anywhere. So, there's a huge in depth bit about that, um, and of course. <coughs> this is the first book that I've ever done where I have no recall whatsoever. You know, I'm not alive at the time. That might shock people. Um, but And so I can't even be like, oh, Christ, I, you know, I finally find something or somebody else finds something and I'll be like, oh, Christ, I remember that now. I wasn't alive. But in a funny way, Davy, and I know you've done these things yourself, it's really exciting when you're uncovering these things you're kind of digging up trees and going, Jesus fucking Christ, you know, this is absolutely incredible. And so we've packed in a lot of that kind of stuff to the book so far. The book's not finished yet, obviously. Um, It'll not be out till April next year. Um, But it was about writing it and then being able to visualise it cinematically so that it could then be made into a film. And as you know, you know, that discussion has been going on now for six months, has, has, has the work into this project. So obviously I put together a, a research team, including yourself, which was absolutely phenomenal. Um, done all sorts of, you know, the archives, the newspapers and various other things and libraries and all that kind of stuff. Um, reference books and libraries are always great. I've become a fixture in Edinburgh Central uh, Library. So much so that I think they think I'm stealing, you know, a book, a book of time. 
Why is this bastard in here every day? He never takes any. I'm sure you don't have as much suspicion, Paul. A baldy guy no. walking into the library, looking into the archives, well, possibly arms and stuff. That's not going to have any kind of suspicion, is it's, it? Um, I was actually. You've got in, TVs for that, though, haven't you? Well, I was actually <laughs> in Tesco a few weeks ago and I was looking at wine. And when I'd been on tour with films, right, I'd somehow, no through choice, but just sitting happened to go to quite a few wineries in California and in Australia and kind of got an interest in it. And, you know, it's be, you know, I say I got an interest in it. I'm no fucking, you know, Keith Floyd, but it's like... You when you like taste to know it, the story behind it. <laughs> this, well, when you taste this stuff, you're like, oh my God, this is like a thousand times better than the stuff you buy over here. How right. is that, you know? So you like to think you know a, you know, a modicum of fucking intelligence about it. So I'm standing, standing in front of this uh, wine rack at Tesco and I could see this boy looking at me, again, security guard. But I was like, whatever. So I'm looking, looking he goes, excuse me, uh, can I ask you what you're doing? And I said, uh, I'm looking at the wine. <laughs> Just that it looks very suspicious the way you're doing it. And I was like, and what, why am I doing it exactly? I'm, I've got two eyes, I'm looking at it. What, what else, what other way am I supposed to do it? He goes, see in future, uh, could you bring out one of the barcode things where you can the things you get, scan everything? And I just went, mate, see in future, just didn't fucking harass me and just walked away with the wine. Um, so I, there is that kind of thing. Um, and, and, and in a way, I mean, I've kind of faced this my whole kind of writing career is that nobody sees you coming, you know? They just look at, oh, it's a fucking schemey bastard. Who do you fucking know about anything kind of thing, right? And that can sometimes help you because um, you're not really seen as a threat to anybody and then the, the information comes out because we've obviously in this podcast only scratched the surface of what's in the book. We'd be a bit foolhardy fucking reveal, oh, aye, this is in it and that's in it. But there's a hell of a lot of new information that I wasn't aware of and, you know, that you weren't aware of and other people research stream, and we've also supported Celtic all our lives. Do you know what I mean? So you would have think you would have had a, an inkling of something but... So that is that is really exciting, um, and it's actually not as difficult as you think, because you see yourself once you get doing that rabbit hole, you start uncovering stuff, and it shocks you quite a lot of the things, and you get excited and you're thinking, fucking hell, it's, it must be like, you know, being on a Monday and working for a Sunday newspaper and thinking I've got to keep this fucking information to Sunday, nobody else gets that kind of thing. Um, so I so we basically, um, as I say, we've been working now for six months on this, and um, with the the view to having a book out in April, and then a film premiere on the first of November. So we've obviously then went back to the same team that done the Ashes years, you know, but Celtic and Armageddon. And I think I said to you before, in between that, it's been, it's, it's been it'll be six years between films by the time this one comes out. And people just think you've been sitting on your ass team for all in that time, right? But I probably pitched five films to that team and they've went, nah, that's shit. Because it's not just a case of when you're paying name, you're not just getting cameramen and editors, you're getting incredible, meticulous research for them. You're getting ideas and creativity and all that. And they'll just be like, now that's shit. And see, the start when I started doing this, David, it's quite hard to do that. You know, it's quite hard to be like thinking you've got all this great stuff and all that kind of thing. And then for somebody to come in and go, actually, this is shit. This is shit. That's unusable. That's this. That's that. And you're kind of, 
can go two ways. You can go and cry in the corner or you can use it and say, I'll show you type thing. And I think that's the biggest thing that I've learned through all these different things is that I kind of know what they're wanting before I actually submit it. So when I'd done it the last time, it was very much a case of, here's what it is, here's what, what I do, this is what I think will look good in the form and that kind of thing. And I could see the positivity go across the faces of the people straight away going, yep, yeah, this is good. And you think, oh, thank fuck. You know, because I'm like, to create the leaf polyester. Oh, I mean, you know, I've had a, like the lockdown go, years when you're talking oh. about. I mean, that's when you're done. You're, you're sitting, you're doing your writing, and this this has gave you the chance to get back out. And, I mean, and the thing is, in the streets again and, and get your aye. ideas to these people. When you're writer, when you're a writer, you're always writing in your head, right? You're walking down the street and you're seeing something and you're inventing scenarios as you go and all that, right? And what we've been doing which is the first time I've ever said this to anybody, was that we were working on, in lockdown and beyond, a Celtic 10 in a row film, basically. Because right. we knew that there would be a DVD for Celtic that would be very much, and then it would, this happened, then that happened, then that happened, right? So we had different angles. It was going to be called Celtic X, and um, we basically fucked that up. As <laughs> a team and a club. So really? That. And so there's nothing you can do about that. You know, years of work, scripts, photos, clips, you name it, gone. So you're kind of like, fuck. And then, um, I know, it's like anything, right? We see with these things, it's like you get David Bowie and he's like fucking genius, keeps changing up, oh, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. And then he goes, oh, I'm going to do this band Tin Machine. And everybody goes, oh, fuck off, man, will you? And it's the same thing with me. I know for a fact that all people are interested in with me is this kind of unearthing stuff. This, let's fucking put a spotlight on the bigots and the cheats and the enemies of Celtic, whether I like it or not. Do you know what I mean? It's just... And actually, that's who I am, right? Now, see if I was talking to you like a year or 18 months ago, I might not have been able to say that because I was probably going through a bit of a midlife crisis. So what am I going to do now? Do you know what I mean? Like, because right. oh, I couldn't find any subjects that were worthy another book and film and all that kind of stuff. Um, I knew that anything else I did was never going to be um, sort of uh, responded to in the same way that that kind of stuff would be. And it made me really question everything about my life. Like, where am I going and what am I doing kind of thing? And is this it? And, you know, I'm a, I just gear up everything and all that kind of stuff. But I have to say that this has completely re-energised and revitalised me in terms of who I am and what I do, which is basically this kind of stuff. Added to the videos and that you were talking about as well, is that, you know, with that kind of stuff, we felt that there were certain things that weren't going to make a full film that we could put in bite-sized chunks just to remind few people. Now, and you've experienced it yourself, that just always comes with the same thing. People just laugh that didn't like us. <laughs> you know, and it's like their whole mantra is we fucking despise you and we do not want you to fucking prosper in any way, but don't ever fucking tell us that we've tried to hinder you. And you're like, really? Okay. <laughs> Aye, okay then, you know, that's your way of telling us by laughing every day. Fine. So, but that, that's there for touchstones for people in the future. You know what I mean? It's like we didn't make any money off it. We didn't do it for publicity or 
you know, we didn't even have the same voices on it. None of us ever appear in them. It's all about these stories. And that is there for future reference. People like, you know, your son and, and his generation might be on the internet in 40 years' time and go, fucking hell, I didn't even realise that was a thing, you know? So that people in the future, when they're doing this, and we're all long shuffled off this mortal coil, can keep doing it and use that stuff as touchstones of research, you know, when it was much made in our heads and that kind of thing now, whereas obviously when we're going back to things in the 1800s and 1900s, it's a lot more difficult, you know, to get stuff. Um, so hopefully that makes it easier. But also it's a simply to remind them, these people who do everything they can to discriminate against us, um, we're always watching. Yeah, but you're saying there as well, Paul, I mean, I'm 41 years of age mm. and I've been fed the snippets through your life, the, 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 the tone, the line and whatever mm. about what your club feed, the dinner table, blah, blah, blah and everything else. And the thing is, you're talking about Robert Kelly, I mean, this guy's overseen the Kelly kids, mm. the, the best team that Scotland's ever produced and you're going to tell us the story of the man the, the mm. behind it like you say you've, you've mm. told us so much information in this short space of time that's out there that's through your research and that's another thing I've seen this in close quarters with this project and by fuck you appreciate it so much more people don't appreciate what actually goes into it and mm. And the, the stuff that you do, like you say, you, you've put so much work into something for the best part of two years for it to go down the Swanee for mm. the sake of that season and, and and putting your mental health into a, <laughs> a state that, that, that none of us have to go about in your 95 jobs and deal with. And for you to come back and get the, the bit between your teeth, for me, and I think I can speak for Thousands of us were grateful to get you back out there, and it's going to be brilliant. Aye, I mean, it's, it is, back I mean, it's, it's, it's an absolute joy when when you're in that project, and then you're thinking, right, okay, let's have a wee look at this and see if it's worthwhile. Um, it's a wee bit like a cold case, you know, where you're like, here's this unsolved murder, and people go back and look at it, and like, Fuck, I don't know what happened, you know. But when you go back and look at it, and you go, actually, there's something here. And then when you turn over that fucking um, stone, there's another one. And then there's another one. And you're like, this is important. You know, this is um, about educating people who didn't... And justifying, you know, because, you know, we've all... You talked about your 41. All I see are paranoid Celtic fans and all this. And yes, everything's a conspiracy and all that. And it's like, well, I... I mean, one of the things, you know, is I'm going to really um, amp up at the start of the book is, you know... We continually get told about rebel songs, right? Or what they got to do with football. And I'd always said, well, they've probably got the same to do with football as the song you'll never walk alone has. Nothing, right? But people sing out of football matches. But when they say, what's rebel songs got to say to do with Celtic? I'll say everything. And I'll show you why in this book, why we should not be ashamed of singing any rebel songs, because that's basically a huge part of the formation of the club. Now, I know that doesn't sit well with the current Tory board and their ideals and let's have all make everything about charity and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, you know, there were two staples in the 1900s of the Irish nationalist identity. One was the GAA in Ireland, another one was Celtic Football Club. Now I ask anybody listening, why should we be ashamed of that? You know? 
people talk about songs these days and it fucking gets my goat because we now know through the uh, opening of files after 30 years and all that kind of thing that in Ireland, in the 1970s onwards, there was torture, there was waterboarding, there was men getting kicked to helicopters, there was people being indiscriminately shot by the FRU and all that kind of thing. And people want to castigate us for singing a fucking song. No, That's it. Okay. It, no it doesn't work like that. You know, that uh, that identity has been tried to be eroded by a number of people, both within Celtic and in Scotland in general, who just despise it. It's absolutely nothing to be ashamed of. In fact, it's the reason why we're all here right now, talking to each other. And more importantly, it's not about religion. It is not about religion. The Michael Davitt's whole sense of when I talked about and John Glass, well, shouldn't it just be an all Catholic team? Where did that come from? It came from Wolf Tone, the Catholic, Protestant, and dissenter, the Irish Republicanism. That's where they took their lead for. Um, so that's nothing to be ashamed of as well. That's the reason why we're known all around the world. It's not because we were formed by a Catholic priest, it's because of the Irish diaspora who connect with the football club and why should we be ashamed of that you know what I mean the people in the Basque country are not ashamed of their heritage why should we be ashamed of ours just because some on the board that doesn't go well that doesn't go down well with the stock market in London I couldn't give a fuck about the stock market in London what I care about is the progression of Celtic football club and the ethos and the identity that it has around it I didn't give a fuck if that means it two pence off the shares fucking price because that means nothing to me. Do you know what I mean? We, we're in an age now where balance sheets are on the Celtic website. Trump aid, I don't give a fuck. The money should be on the pitch. That's where the players are. Um, and that's why, you know, I always continue to say it and speak out about that because Celtic's a football team and it was founded for incredible reasons. Yes, charity, yes, to help people, but it was also part of a national identity in terms of Irish home rule, and that is something I will never shy away from or never not be proud of. And, you know, Paul, that's something that I would like to think, I mean, our support is, I mean, varied more than any other, that mm. we all know there's thousands of the Protestant faith, Sikh, mm -hmm. Muslim, and none, no faith at all. Mm -hmm. And what I like to think about Celtic fans in general, we're level-headed. If you present a fact, he is mm. it's an indisputable fact. That we'll take it on board and, and we'll say, well, aye, that's it. And for the research that I've seen that you've been doing so far, I'm pretty sure that a lot of that, when it's it's in the book and it's uh, there for folk to see and they, they read things and they'll make up their own minds and, and I don't think there'll be much getting away from more or less folk saying, well, do you know what, you're right, Paul Larkin. Well, what I always say to people when you talk to other supporters in Liverpool and Man United and all that is they go on about the size of their clubs and support around the world and all that. And that really is a pop band type of support. You know, it's people who buy shirts like in the way that people buy New York Yankees caps and don't have any clue who they're playing tomorrow or anything like that. What I will say in our defence is that, yeah, we have got a support around the world that's dedicated and educated. You know, if you go to Chicago and meet, you know, Mike Boyd, who runs the Chicago CSC there, and you've walked in off the street, just as he did many years ago and found Celtic, he'll be able to tell you about the history of the club and very um, sort of 
feats in it and why it was here and the origins and all that kind of stuff. Do you think somebody that supports Liverpool in fucking Tokyo could do that? Do you know what I mean? I've seen that, you know, club banter with Liverpool fans all the time and every time they give me this, oh, we're the big I am, um, I always send them photos of the Michael Davitt CSC in Liverpool. <laughs> and saying, show me, that, show me the equivalent of that Liverpool and Glasgow. And mm-hmm. they can't. Um, so aye, so it is, it's, it's, it's good. And it's also, um, as I say, we've got in-depth on Robert Kelly and his chairmanship and in-depth on McGrory as manager as well because as much as a, a great player he was, um, he also did some incredible things as manager and as person at Celtic, which um, we're going to really open up McGrory as the person just to, so people you see just, you know, didn't he even think for one second that there's anybody more important in this club's history than James McGrory? Not just because he's player uh, record, not just because even his managerial record and the various heights he achieved with that, but as a man and as a servant to the club, there's never been anyone better. And that's, again, another person that you'll be putting out there again just going behind the name and the song and whatever mm. and and hopefully hopefully it's not going to be lost on the, the younger generation and like you say dedication and education I think that's a fucking fantastic phrase and one that we can all take on board mm. and take on what, what you're going to put out there and pass it on and, and we're, we're a lot more than what's going on on the football field I mean remember your traditions and mm. be proud of where this club came from whether it was the same background as yourself or no but the one thing is it didn't it didn't exclude anyone is and, and that's something when you look across the city at the apartheid policy brought in mm. by the, the, the say the twenties onwards it, it didn't really well, we all know when it ended we thou who mm. shall not be named but mm. again our club and it is and it's been proud of it Jimmy McGrory let's celebrate this guy let's mm. let's get him out there to the masses yeah. and that's what you're doing so 100%, I, 100% aye. Um, so uh, anything else at Paul that you would like to put out there with, in terms of dates well, well just the, the um, thing that I would like to mention is that this, obviously this doesn't come fucking for nothing and you personally and your wife have put up a third about this project mm. is costing and that being £5,000 there I mean that's just by the by this is about you know ordinarily this would cost £100,000 the team that we've got in place just finished the Ian Rush documentary which cost budget was £1.6 million you know that's why I archive that we get them for you know, fifteen grand because of contacts and fucking matrix and a half that. Basically, so in a way, you although you're effectively their employer, you can't sort of be like, right, come on, fuck, let's go here because Aye, you know they're doing exactly your turn. Um, so we've we've raised probably eight grand already, and we'll probably need another seven by the time this comes out. Hopefully, less. Um, we released the whole thing. Well, I've released it actually on the sixth of October, and um, so you'll kind of know by the time this that with the investment packages and all that kind of stuff. Um, the information will be on the Still Are the Tim's Facebook group, Still Are the Tim's X feed, um, and you know Still Are the Tim's has been huge in it because obviously, like you're selling other people, well, that's part of it, and that's a kind of sideline Still Are the Tim's where we're kind of out there trying to. Um, do things to promote our heroes and, and attack our enemies if you like and um, 
that's been a huge part of it in terms of the podcast as well, was getting the information out there and seeing that unity amongst the contributors. You know, I'm the guy that edits a podcast and I can tell you, like, it's fucking incredible. Every time you play a game, it's like 10 different games. You know, <laughs> it's literally like one person's gone, oh, he is fucking useless and that. And then the next person goes, hi, well, I've got to say, I thought so-and-so was man of the match today. And you're like, fucking hell, man, you know? <laughs> But that's the beauty of it, because we didn't censor it or edit it to filter it or anything. It's just, boom. Whatever said, even if I disagree with every single fucking syllable that's been put in that thing, I'm not going to say that's not going to, you know, and that's it. Because I let them, you know, um, a couple of weeks ago, Livingston, you had a guy who was at the game and he's like, how the fuck can Joe Hart get set off for that? And I'm just listening going, for fuck's sake, you need to watch this on the telly. Like, you know what I mean? But that's the nature of it. Um, and the Still Are The Timths thing has been massive because for the first time I'm not doing this stuff on my own. And that can be anything for guys like yourself going out researching and us getting a lift to here, there and everywhere and all that to just being like, how you doing guys on a Monday night when you're feeling maybe a bit doomed or a bit pissed off Aye. or low or anything like that. Yep. Just that wee sounding board to people. And obviously... You know, the people I'm talking about are basically nutcases who... <laughs> I can think of a few. Aye, um, who are basically, you know, I think go, okay, more skeletons in the closet than a Halloween <laughs> party as they unravel. And that's the thing with people is that the more you talk to them, the better you get to know them. Sometimes you actually think, actually, this fucker's a dick. But <laughs> that's not really happened with us, you know what I mean? We've had a, face, a sorry, WhatsApp group it basically lost only one person who just didn't get involved in anything. Whereas everybody else, you know, the banter flies and all that. And as I said, a lot of that is character building, you know, because I know, and you've experienced it yourself, as have others in the group already, what it's like to be on the shit end of the, the abuse and all that. Yeah. And that's why we all fly banter in each other's faces, because if you can't take that, you'll never take the stuff that the Huns throw at you. You know what I mean? So it prepares you. But that's been really, really good, and that's the kind of banner under which the book and film will come under. Um, but yeah, so if people can look at the investment packages, we've got everything for 25 quid up to a thousand pound. Um, it's running for October the 6th right through to next June, so if you want to do payment plans or instalments, whatever you want, it's all there. We didn't make a penny off this. <coughs> this is all about just getting this story out here. You know, that, that's basically the aim. And that support is vital, like you say, Paul. I mean, we're all stepping up in marine ways and be it with talented guys mm. like Felm who can put the, the song out there or Chris who's done the videos and, and what have you. And, You've also and, got Naz that does massages, member. So. Well, I was waiting for you to put out there and see if we'd get any that, business that if way. If we're struggling for months. investment, I'm going to put him out there as a masseuse to, you know, light, light finger Naz, the, the man who can rub away all your problems. Right, well, I'm going to suggest Peter McAllister then to be mm. his um, first one to work on and Bye. see how it goes. He'll then. probably have to be outside Peter's house though because he seemed to get himself looked out all the time. Oh, for um, fuck's sake. As he did. But yeah, great, great bunch of people and, and a massively vital part in all this. Everybody's played their part, as a certain hunger striker once said. Well. I'm sure that everybody will be behind us and get going and that'll be us Aye, okay. the new project Paul it's oh. been a 
great talking to you this afternoon. Yeah, like it's, been, it's been decidedly average talking to you, Davy. Um, oh, fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll catch you later on, pal. All right, right thank Cheers. you. Bye bye.